Well, let's uh, pick up our story again in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 29. And uh, last week we were looking at verses uh, 13 through 20, which is uh, kind of a transitional passage, just, just kind of laying the foundation and giving us uh, information that we're going to need uh, as we go, go on in the story. And uh, so we took some time to look at that and get our feet on the ground as far as, uh, as, far as Jacob's time in Haran. And uh, <clears throat> today we'll pick up the story beginning in verse 21, uh, where he actually uh, uh, gets married. And uh, the story gets quite complicated from there on out, as it does for all of us when we get married. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, not quite as bad usually as Jacob's situation. <clears throat> but uh, uh, before we go on with the, the passage we're going to look at today, uh, let's go back and, and uh, try and remember what did we talk about last week. <clears throat> I know all you guys kept trying to get me ahead into this week's lesson last week. That's the one thing I remember. That seemed to be a factor that made her less attractive for some reason. We, we did a lot of comparing between Jacob's story and Abraham's story. Mm-hmm. Come to the well, Abraham's servant prayed, Jacob didn't, he showed off. Some, some different comparisons like that. Yeah. There were similarities of that God was with him, but he didn't do it the same way as that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is a little encouraging to to realize that even when we're blowing it, God's in control. But that's <laughs> that's no excuse to be blowing it. So yeah, for sure. What else? Laban was obviously impressed with his work ethic. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like Laban thought, "Hey, I got a, <laughs> I got somebody here that'll be a be an asset to the company here." <laughs> What else? Talk about these words that were bad things that are good people and good things that are bad people. That's great to know all that. Yeah. So Jacob, he gets there and he spends about a month there before uh, things start to really happen. Uh, what's going on during that month? Starts to work. Okay, he starts to work. He starts to impress his father or his uncle with his uh, <coughs> with his uh, work ethic. But what else of significance? Keeping his eye on Rachel. Yeah, he's got his eye on this good-looking woman, Rachel. Okay, he's he's uh, he he kind of likes her. He's fallen in love with her. Okay, and. Uh, <coughs> And so then we talked about uh, we talked about Laban's predicament. What was Laban's predicament? How much you pay or do you pay? Yeah. Over? Yeah. How do you pay a relative? <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 Yeah.
Anybody who's employed a relative knows that that can be a complicating issue. <laughs> so he's, he's trying to figure out how do I handle this thing? I got a relative working for me. And so he comes to Jacob and he and what does he do? Yeah, he asked Jacob what he wants to be paid, you know, and we talked about the principle there and we learned in salesmanship is the first one to name his price loses. <laughs> so Jacob names his price here and he ends up working seven years for Rachel. Uh, what did he think about those seven years? Okay. It was nothing to him. He was, you know, he was he was around his loved one, the one he loved, and he had the anticipation and the expectation that he was going to marry her, and and uh, so he just went to work and enjoyed his work apparently, and and uh, and it just seemed to him like just a few days uh, for seven years. Okay. Anything else? Sure. Yeah, he could have left, and he would have lost a good, uh, a good worker there. So he wanted to keep him around. You were going to say something? Yeah. Well, just a thought. I was situation between Rachel and Leah, and uh, Rachel got to meet him first, and therefore he was impressed. Yeah. However, I'm thinking that maybe over this time, uh, Leah became as impressed with him as well. Which is probably why she wasn't protesting. Well, that's a, yeah, that is a that is a factor that some commentators bring up that maybe Leah kind of had her eye on this guy too, and so uh, that things get real complicated as I say real quick, and we'll see that as we go forward. What else? They probably thought he could get Leah married off. Yeah, I assume giving Laban the benefit of the doubt, which sometimes we aren't too inclined to do because uh, he is kind of a scoundrel, but, but giving him the benefit of the doubt at this point, I assume when he entered into this agreement with Jacob that he is assuming that he's got seven years to get Leah married off. You know, how hard can that be? And uh, as it turns out, it's apparently more difficult than he anticipated uh, because he doesn't succeed in doing that. So... So I don't assume that from the very outset he had planned to pull the switch that we're going to read about today. But uh, but ultimately, as things turn out, uh, they don't always turn out the way we expected them. He also said that what happened to Jacob was to prepare him to come to Israel. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we'll think some more about that today. But, but what we see is we see... Uh, Jacob, who, as we talked about before, has deceived others and tricked others and betrayed others. And and it, for him to become the man that God wants him to become, for him to for him to cease being Jacob, the supplanter and become Israel, the father of a mighty nation uh, for that to happen. Uh, there's going to need to be some changes in his life. And one of the things he's going to need to understand is what it feels like to be hurt. And so uh, that's one of the things we're going to look at today. Okay. Um, before we read today's passage, let's go back to chapter 27. And I just want to read a few verses there 
to kind of remind us of some things in the past, okay? So that as we read today's passage, which we'll do in just a minute, we'll read them with this kind of fresh in our mind. But back in chapter 27 is, is where we encounter the story where uh, Jacob and his mother, uh, Rebecca, plotted that whole scheme and they... Um, uh, and, and to uh, deceive Isaac and to steal the blessing uh, that was rightfully Esau's. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, we know the whole story. We studied that of how that happened and everything. But I just wanted to remind you, uh, just a couple, three verses here or so, a few verses here. I just kind of want to remind you of, of the reaction to that and keep that in mind as we look at the story about Jacob and Laban. But back in chapter 27, in verse 30, right after uh, Jacob has succeeded in getting the blessing, right after his father has blessed him, it says, Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out of the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was he that hunted game and brought it to me that I ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Okay, well, <clears throat> let's go on over to chapter 29 now and uh, we'll pick up the story uh, in verse 21. Then Jacob said, this is now at the conclusion of the seven years of working for Rachel, <coughs> working in order to, uh, to, to receive Rachel. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilna to his daughter uh, Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went, to, uh, went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, 
Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. And then she stopped bearing. <clears throat> okay, so we go back to the beginning of our passage here. And uh, Laban has completed, or excuse me, Jacob has completed his seven years by contract. And so he comes to Laban. It's interesting to me that Laban doesn't come to Jacob and say, okay, I owe you this now. This, you know, this, uh, <clears throat> but rather, Jacob has to come and ask for his wife. Uh, and uh, and so Laban then throws this great feast. OK, and of course, that's a typical thing. And it was typically a week long wedding feast. So if you were wealthy enough to pull this off, you would have this week long feast. And as you see, at least in the beginning, it's just the guys. Now, it's probably a good thing we don't do weddings that way anymore. But basically what you've got here, if you can imagine this, this is just basically a bachelor's party, okay? And you can imagine what bachelor's parties turn into, okay? So you've got this, you've got this wedding feast which starts out uh, essentially as a bachelor's party and you have the first day and there's all the things that go on with a bachelor's party and then at the end of the day, in the evening, it says that, uh, uh, excuse me, that Laban went and, and got uh, Rachel and brought Rachel and gave Rachel to Jacob, right? No? Well, wait a minute. Isn't that the agreement? Who does he bring? He brings the oldest. He brings Leah, okay? She obviously... And he's not obviously, obviously, he has not managed to get her married off in the seven years that have lapsed since they entered into this agreement. And so he still has her on his hands and he brings Leah. OK, now the question that kept coming up last week, because you people try, kept trying to get ahead of me, was how did he pull this off? <laughs> OK, how do you you know, how do you get a guy married to somebody different than the one they were planning to marry? OK. Well, it really doesn't tell us here, does it? It just tells us he brought Leah and, you know, and it's very clear from the story that Jacob isn't aware that it's Leah until the next morning. Okay. 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 There are three explanations and I think all three of them play a part in the story. Okay. Uh, so there, uh, there are three possible things that are going on here. Uh, and, and one of them, of course, is this is a bachelor's party, guys. And there's a lot of wine flowing, you know. So probably there's a pretty good chance that Jacob is uh, somewhat uh, inebriated. OK, so his judgment and perhaps even his vision at this point is a little impaired. You know, personally, I think that's a terrible condition to be in on your wedding night. <laughs> uh, I think on your wedding night, you ought to have all your senses and all your faculties because you're going to need them. But uh, at any rate, he's somewhat inebriated. Presumably, it doesn't tell us that. Okay. The other factor that plays in here is uh, in a in a in an Eastern type wedding, uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern wedding. What was the bride dressed like? 
Okay, she's completely veiled. She's veiled from head to foot. Okay, so she's her whole body is veiled. Her whole body is veiled, and her and her head and her face are completely veiled. Okay, uh, and this is obvious because there's clearly a distinction between uh, Leah's eyes and Rachel's eyes. So even if her eyes were uh, unveiled or, or or visible, it would have been fairly easy to detect the two unless you were a little too inebriated. But at any rate, she's completely veiled. She's completely covered. Okay. Uh, and then the other factor that maybe we don't think about so much in our culture is, uh, you know, they didn't have electricity back then. It was dark. Okay. It's now evening time. It's nighttime. And so when he goes into the tent to Leah, it's dark. So it's dark. He's not in complete control of his faculties and uh, and she is she is completely veiled. So he doesn't he, he doesn't really see her uh, and, and she, he's not able to detect who she is. OK, none of that stuff is explained in the text. It's all left for us to kind of surmise. OK, now remember that this was first written for the children of Israel as they're in the wilderness and they know all this stuff. OK, culturally, they know all this stuff. So perhaps that's why it isn't explained in the text. <coughs> But there are these these factors that obviously Laban is counting on in order to be able to pull off this switch that he plans to pull off. Now, what's the problem with all this? (laughs) He's going to wake up. But I mean, even before that, what's the problem? Well, yeah. What's the problem with pulling this off? You say, besides his lying, deceiving. <laughs> you guys are all coming up with the right answers to the wrong question or, or, or whatever. Yeah, I can't. I can't ask the question. I'm trying to manipulate y'all to give me the answer I want. <laughs> Excuse me. Leah's got to go along with this. Well, okay, and we'll talk about Leah in just a minute here. Uh, yeah, she does have to go, and obviously she does go along with it. But. Well, that's a problem. All this stuff is right, you people are saying, but it's not the point. I'm tra- the point I'm trying to get is this is a really risky plan, right? I mean, you're counting on all these things to work exactly right to be able to pull this off, right? I mean, how would you feel if you were Laban? You know, wouldn't you be a little nervous going, boy, I hope this works, you know? Because, yeah, yeah, man, I mean, you keep loading this guy up, just hoping that by the time you get done, he can't see anymore. Yeah, you know, it's it's a risky plan. What does that sound like to you? Does that bring back any memories? Sounds like Jacob and Rebecca, doesn't it? Remember that when their deception of, of Isaac, that's a pretty risky plan. And in fact, the text we just read points out, back there in chapter 27, points out how risky it was. He just barely got out of there. Jacob just barely got out of there before Esau came back. Man, if Esau had come back a few minutes earlier, Jacob would have been dead. That was a risky plan. But it worked. Now we have another deception going on, and it's similarly risky. Now, I don't think Laban's life was at stake, perhaps, in it, but it's still a pretty risky plan. What if this doesn't work? What if he's not drunk enough? What if he, you know, what if he opens his eyes and looks at this woman, you know? You know, just, there's all kinds of possibilities here of this thing not going right. 
And yet it works. And the point I'm trying to make is we have all these explanations for how Laban pulled this thing off and why it worked. But ultimately, I think we have to recognize it worked for the same reason that it worked with with Jacob and Isaac earlier. Is that God was providentially allowing this to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that God approved or condoned or even wanted Laban to deceive Jacob. Laban's act is an act of treachery. It's deceitful. It's lying. And it's contrary to the nature of God. So it's not that God wanted this to happen, but God in His providence allows it to happen because... In God's great plan, he sees a greater good that will come from this. Just as he did in the story of Isaac and Jacob and that whole deception. So, there are all kinds of things that could have gone wrong in this plan. And ultimately, I think we have to go, wow, that's pretty risky. That's pretty scary. And yet, God allowed it. And the reason God allowed it is because as as we believe the reason that God allows any evil is because he has some far greater good in mind. In our lives, the reason God allows evil to happen is because he has some far greater good in mind. It's very clear in the life of Jacob that God has a far greater good in mind. Certainly there's the children that are going to come, the family that he's going to have, and all that sort of thing in the nation of Israel, uh, the birth of Judah, uh, the coming of the Messiah, the birth of King David, all of these great things that are going to come from his marriage to Leah. Okay, So there are many great good things that are going to come as a result of this evil act of Laban's. But there are also going to be these 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 surpassingly great good things that are going to happen in the life of Jacob himself as he is over a period of time transformed by this sequence of deceptions and treacheries that Laban carries out against him. It's God shaping and making Jacob into the man he wants him to be. But there's another even greater good here, another greater good also here that we shouldn't overlook. There's the greater good of, of the nation of Israel and the coming of King David and the Messiah and all those sort of things. There's the good in the life of, of Jacob as he is progressively transformed by all these things that happen. But there's also a greater good that's going to happen in the life of Leah. And it's so very easy as we go through this whole story to, to kind of put Leah over here on the side. And what I like about our passage today is that it really makes Leah central to the story and it causes us to take some time and really think about Leah. Because there's a lot to think about there. And the first thing somebody already mentioned is one of the things that's obvious in this story is that Leah is complicit in this, right? Now... 
Why would Leah go along with this scheme? Seems like from the passage, she's craving to be loved. Maybe she sees it as her opportunity. Yes. Let me just give you a verse, and I turn to it. I'll just uh, read it to you. In Proverbs 30, in verse, uh, uh, well, it starts in verse, uh, in verse 21. It says, "Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes a king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food, and under an unloved woman when she gets a husband." <laughs> Here we have a woman who's unloved. Her father doesn't really love her. He's just using her. She's just fodder for the negotiations. She's a way to exploit Jacob. Okay? And she's a burden around his neck. He hasn't been able to get her married off. Okay, So this is my chance to get her married off and I can use her and I can exploit uh, I can exploit Jacob and get another seven years out of him. Okay, so she's really not loved by her father, and she has obviously not been. Uh, she's not been courted. No one has wanted to marry her, and so she's not been married. She has no husband to love her. Okay, so she is an unloved woman, and uh, as Dagan pointed out, as the story goes forward. The one thing that becomes clear about Leah is she just craves to be loved. Now, what she does here is clearly wrong. It's clearly immoral of her. It's unrighteous of her to deceive this man, to trick this man in this way, to go along with this plan. Of course, we we might speculate as to how much choice she had in the matter. I don't know. But... But she is clearly complicit and she, to some degree, bears some responsibility, I think, for this deception that is carried out. But with that being said, we need to understand, Leah, and I think we need to be very sympathetic of this poor woman. Who, because she's been given a series of circumstances in her life, she's she's in a situation where... She just doesn't have all the advantages that everybody else has or that some others have, or particularly in this case that her, her, older, or her younger sister has. She just doesn't have all the advantages. And so she is, she is looking for this love that she can't get from her dad and she's not been able to get from a man. And so this is maybe how we can do it. Okay? And we'll see this as the story unfolds. So she becomes a part of this deception or this plan. And and as we say, it's a it's a risky plan. It's a risky plan for Laban and it's a risky plan for Leah, but God providentially allows it to succeed. Not only because he has a greater plan for Israel and because he has a greater plan for Jacob, but also because he has a greater plan for Leah. And we're going to see that as the story unfolds. The one thing that we're never sure that Leah ever gets is the one thing she really wants, which is the love of a man. Okay, 
And there's never any indication in the whole story of Leah and her whole life. There's never any indication that Jacob ever loves her uh, the way she desires to be loved. Now, you'll notice that it it says that uh, in... um, Uh, let's see, down in verse uh, 30, it says, uh, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. So, uh, before I get to that, let's back up here. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Uh, so, Laban now, or Jacob, uh, on the morning, the next morning, he wakes up and he discovers that he's married the wrong woman. Okay, now... You know, I, I tried to kind of imagine that, <laughs> you know, and it's it's just a little hard. But guys, try to do this if you can. It's a little hard to do this. But what would it have been like on the morning after your wedding if you woke up in bed and realized you had married the wrong woman? And a woman that you didn't love, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I just yeah, I just do a disconnect at this point. You know, I I can't imagine this. But we've been set up here. We've been set up by the narration. We've been set up by the way Moses tells the story. Because we've been, we've been expecting him to marry Rachel and he's worked for Rachel for seven years. It was nothing because he loved Rachel so much. And, he, and there's all this expectation and this hope and this anticipation. And what struck me as I was thinking about this yesterday is is he doesn't come to the realization that he's married the wrong woman slowly. You know, this is not something that, you know, over a period of time he starts realizing, I think Laban's going to trick me. And, you know, this isn't going to work the way I, you know, and I got to be careful that, you know, this may not work out. You know, there's none of that. There's not the slightest clue. He is completely blindsided by what happens. I cannot imagine waking up in the morning the day after your wedding before you open your eyes and you're thinking, finally, we're married. And then rolling over in bed and opening your eyes and seeing a woman there you don't love. And is not the woman you expected to be there. And that's, excuse me. Yeah, he's probably, he's probably gone out to the field, way out in the field somewhere. But that's why I read you that passage in chapter 27. Because what Jacob is feeling here in that moment when he turns over in bed and looks over there and sees Leah laying there is so similar to what Isaac felt when Esau came in the tent. And what Esau felt that moment when they were each blindsided by Jacob's deception. And they both realized that irrevocable things had happened and turned life on its head. And now God is allowing Jacob to feel what he has done to others. Now, we have this phrase that we use nowadays. We say, what goes around comes around. And that is so often the case. But oftentimes when we say that, I think we say that kind of with a sense of, well, that's fate. But it's not fate. 
It's the providence of God trying to help us understand what it's like when we're on the other side. What it's like when we receive in our flesh what we have done to others. And it's because God wants us to understand that that in His providence so oftentimes what goes around comes around. And this is what Jacob is now experiencing. And his, his response, interestingly enough, is so similar to the response that Pharaoh gives in Egypt when he discovers that he has been lied to by Abraham. And that Abimelech gives when he discovers that he has been deceived by Isaac. It's this, what have you done to me? Why have you done this? It's this, it's this incomprehension, you know, this does not compute. Why would anybody do this kind of thing to somebody else? Which one of you would do this to somebody? Which one of you would do this to your worst enemy? Make them marry a woman they didn't love. If for no other reason than for the poor woman's sake, why would you do it? None of us would do that. And Abraham, or Jacob is absolutely baffled. You know, what, is, what have I done? You know, wh- why would you do such a thing? So he comes, to, he comes to, he finds Laban, wherever Laban is at this point. He chases Laban down and he says, why have you done this? I, I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? And what does Laban tell him? <laughs> nope, that's not what he said. <laughs> it would have been a better excuse. Yeah, it would have been a better excuse than the one he gave. Yeah, he didn't read the fine print. We got a custom here, folks. Now, what is so tragic about this whole thing is he says we have a custom he says we we don't do things this way in this place you know we don't marry off the younger before the firstborn. and it's like he just slapped Jacob across the face because Jacob's been fighting this primogenitor thing for his whole life primo primary Genitor, Genesis, beginning birth, first birth. This is the law of primogenitor that he's been knocking his head up against his whole life. And he thought he finally got the better of it. By trickery and deception, he thought he finally got the better of it. And now, by trickery and deception, it comes back and slaps him in the face again. No, we don't do things this way. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a minute ago that maybe he didn't plan this from the very beginning. But when you read this, you realize he knew from the very beginning they had this custom. Yeah, yes. So he had to figure out some way yeah. to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. He was thinking, yeah, he was thinking. I, I, like I said, I assume he thought he'd get her married off. But as the years passed, I'm sure this plan began to formulate in his mind. Yeah, he knew the custom, but uh, but Jacob also knew the custom. 
I mean, this wasn't just local. Go ahead. Man, I was wondering, there's nowhere else in the Bible I've seen you say, was it a custom, or is this just something Raven made up to get rid of Leah? Uh, no, I assume it was the custom. I, I don't know. Uh, like you say, we don't encounter it anywhere else in Scripture. I didn't see any commentators who questioned that it was the custom. I asked that question myself, but I didn't see any, I didn't see any commentators who questioned whether it was the custom. But what is interesting here, one of the things that's interesting here is, well, before I get to that, I keep trying to get ahead of myself here. So, so here is Jacob who has been knocking his head against this law of primogeniture his whole life. Now, when I say law of primogeniture, it is a custom. It is not a law of God. Okay. There's nowhere in Scripture where it's ordained by God that this is the way it must be. Okay. But, but as we discussed when we clear back early in Genesis when we talked about the whole concept of of the patriarchal culture, we discussed why the law of primogeniture is, was so important to the culture because of the whole patriarchal system. Okay, and so we discussed why it was important, but but it is not a law of God. But it has gained by this time, it has gained such dominance in the culture that it's almost a moral principle. And Jacob has been knocking his head up against this his whole life. That he is born moments after his brother Esau. And his brother Esau gets everything and he gets nothing. And over a period of time that wears on him and wears on him and he plots and he schemes and he figures out a way first to get the birthright and then ultimately to steal the blessing. And he thinks he's gotten the better of it. But we will see in Jacob's life that he fights this his entire life. He encounters it with Esau. He encounters it now with Laban and Rachel and Leah. And, and I can't help but think that maybe part of Jacob's fascination with Rachel is that she was the younger. But it is interesting. You'll notice how much of an issue this whole thing of passing on the blessing to the right son was a big issue with Abraham. And how it's a big issue with Jacob. But as we go forward in the story of Genesis, we'll notice there's none of that with Jacob's 12 sons. With Jacob's 12 sons, and one commentator was wrestling through this as I was reading through one commentator, and he was, he was wrestling through this. So which son gets, you know, gets the primary blessing? You know? Is it Reuben? You know, is it Joseph? You know? and, and, and none of them do. It's like, at that point in his life, Jacob, you know, he's, he just refuses to say to one of his sons, you're the one. Okay. So ultimately, when we come to the blessing of the sons in Genesis 49, he blesses all 12 of them. Okay. He blesses all of them. Yes. Well, it seemed like it was kind of a big deal with God, too, with Jacob and Esau, because God seemed upset that Esau didn't value perfect. Uh, what was important to God was the birthright and the blessing. What was when you when you say it was important with God? What I'm suggesting is what was important with God was the birthright and the blessing. What was not so important with God was the principle of primogeniture, because God overrules it in the case of Jacob, and he overrules it in a number of instances where God actually puts His favor on the younger. So, so my point is that. The law of primogeniture is a cultural law 
it's not it's not it is it is a it is not God's law. God has not ordained it and said this is the way it must be. And oftentimes throughout Scripture, we see that God, in fact, works contrary to the law of primogeniture. Okay. Does that answer your question? OK. Uh, so where was I? You guys don't know. <laughs> so, oh, so I was talking about how this is this is an issue for Jacob and all his life. And so then finally, when we come then to the end and he blesses the sons of Joseph, and we'll talk about this. We've mentioned it before. Remember how he crosses his hands. OK. And so as to so as to, in one sense, put the youngest son in the place of the oldest son as he gives the blessing on the sons of Joseph. This is an issue that Jacob faces and deals with and wrestles with all his life because of the, because of the lot he was dealt in life. And he doesn't always deal with it right. Okay. But when Laban says to Jacob, this is our law, this is our custom, this is the way we do things, we don't marry off the youngest before the firstborn. He's basically just, he doesn't know it, I don't think he knows it, but he's just slapping Jacob in the face. And he's saying, here it is, Jacob, you're not going to get away from this. And, and what strikes me about this is, we all have lots we are dealt in life, and they're not always the lot we would have chosen. And we can be like Jacob and we can fight it our whole life. And it can just mess up and tear up our lives. Or we can say, this is God's providence in my life. Some of it is bad stuff and some of it is good stuff, but all of it is allowed by God for a greater good. And I think eventually Jacob comes to that point. You know, when I grew up, I grew up in a home of, of three boys. Okay, that's bad enough as it is when you're the youngest one. Okay, but, but my oldest brother, uh, I hope he doesn't hear this tape because I don't want to get a fat head. But my oldest brother's a genius. He's just smart, you know. He's the kind of guy, you know, he, he just, you know, in school A's just fell out of the sky on his head, you know. And, uh, and he ended up salutatorian in his senior class of high school uh, because the woman he eventually would marry actually got valedictorian by one grade in one class in four years of high school. And so she beat him out for valedictorian. But he's a smart dude, you know. He's still a smart dude. Unfortunately, he knows it. So, you know, that's a liability. But he's smart. Okay, so I grew up. With, with an older brother who was just smart, okay? And I'm, I won't tell you about my grades in school, but they didn't compare. I'll just say that, okay? And then I have my other brother, the, the middle boy, uh, son, middle son, and he was the athlete, you know? He was the guy who could do it all. Football, basketball, you know, he could do it all, you know? And so... My older brother got the brains and my my other older brother got the bronze. What does that leave for me? Well, in today's culture, not a lot. <laughs> you know, if you're not, you know, if you're not a brain, if you're not an athlete, you just don't have much in life, you know. And and I, I'm not I, I wouldn't want to blame that for all my personality disorders that you notice. But uh, but I was aware of that when I grew up, you know, and the question is. What do you do with it? What do you do with the things, with the lot you're dealt with in life? You know, do you just, do you resent it? Do you fight against it like Jacob did for so long? Or at some point in your life, do you just say, 
okay, God meant this for a greater good. I may not know what that greater good is. But, but I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to worship Him. And I'm going to serve Him. And however things turn out, I will have confidence that they were for His glory and for His best. And for my best. Well, the other thing that's interesting about Laban here is, and this doesn't come out so much in the English, but I understand it does in the Hebrew, that what he's really doing here is, is when he says, this, this, we don't do things this way, it's, it's really, he's, he's really kind of making it like a moral issue. Because, because the law of primogeniture had become so strongly entrenched in the culture, it really was kind of a moral thing in their minds, even though it wasn't ordained by God. So in one sense, what Laban is doing here is he's trying to claim the higher moral ground. This is what's really galling about this. Okay? He's actually trying to lay the blame on Jacob and say, you know, who are you to expect me to go against this high moral law we have that we don't marry off the younger before the firstborn? And so it's so it's like, in order to justify himself, he's trying to claim the higher moral ground. So if you weren't mad enough at Laban now, now you're probably really mad at him, right? The guy is a real jerk. He has no moral ground for this. He had made an agreement. He'd made a contract. And he knew that if Leah didn't get married, what the consequences would be. But so he tries to kind of make it look like Jacob's the one who's being unreasonable here, that he would expect that he would give him Rachel after seven years. I mean, after all, we just don't do that. Well, so he goes, they make this agreement then. Okay, what we'll do is we'll wait a week. You finish the marriage week with Leah and then I'll give you Rachel and then you work seven more years. Okay. And that ultimately is what transpires. Uh, so it is interesting here that Laban has enough common sense at this point not to say you work for another seven years and then I'll give you Rachel. <laughs> Jacob wouldn't have gone for that, of course. So, so uh, it is interesting here at this point that 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 Laban trusts Jacob to work out that last seven years. Okay. So apparently Laban has more confidence in Jacob than Jacob has in Laban. Now, if Jacob, if Laban really knew Jacob, he might not have been as quick to agree to that. But as it turns out, Jacob turns out to be fairly honorable in this first, because there's absolutely no mention at all, not the slightest hint or suggestion that the thought ever crossed Jacob's mind that this was not a bona fide marriage that he must honor. There's no suggestion of divorce. There's no suggestion of annulment. There's no suggestion, you know, in our day, if that happened in our day, it would immediately be annulled, you know. But there's no suggestion of that, okay. It's not even brought up. So there's not much I can say about it other than Jacob goes, okay, I'm, I'm in this and I'm going to have to honor. Okay. And the second thing that re- reflects Jacob's honor in this case is that he is willing to work another seven years. Now, there are some issues. It's not all that easy to grab your family and run, although ultimately that is what he does uh, after 20 years. But but uh, but he does he does honor his obligation and he does serve out his seven years. I thought you didn't 
How come you didn't say, hey, wait a second, where's Rachel? Where was Rachel? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. She must have been. She must have been broken hearted. She maybe didn't know it was her wedding day. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I, didn't even, I hadn't even thought about that, Tom. It's, it, it had to be a pretty rough time for her, too. Well, I even may have told Rachel that he didn't really want to marry one day. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Pending <laughs> sheep. But she did know it was her wedding day. I mean, she had to know there was a wedding going on. So, anyway, I don't know the answer to that question. But they get married. Uh, Leah and Jacob, and then Rachel and Jacob. And so Jacob goes in and he goes into her and he loves her. It says he loves her more than Leah, which is being kind, it's being gracious there. Because in the next verse, it says she was unloved. And uh, Leah, that is. And the word there actually has a fairly broad semantic range. And can be translated hate. Okay. Now, I'm not suggesting that it should be translated that this way, uh, that way in this place. Uh but what I am suggesting to you is it's there's really more implied in the word than just simply the, the absence of love. There's actually in the word there's more often is implied some degree of negative. Okay. And so I would suggest to you that maybe a better way to translate it here is that Leah was resented. He didn't actually hate her. But I cannot help but expect that he resented her. And I think we shouldn't be surprised at that. Remember in Colossians, uh, I think it's in Colossians 3, Paul, in instructing us husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives and what? Do not be embittered against them. Isn't that interesting he says that? You ever thought about that? Why does he say that? Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Because I think it is quite common and quite easy for a husband to be embittered against his wife. And I would suggest love her at the same time. You see, because one of the things we husbands finally wake up to, and sometimes it's on the morning after our wedding, but sometimes it's days or weeks or months or even years down the road, is we wake up to the realization is our wife cannot provide for us everything we want. No wife can. And oftentimes we go sailing into marriage thinking, boy, I'm going to get married and life's going to be great. I'm going to have this woman who's going to love me and, you know, is going to kiss the ground I walk on and, you know, is going to never burn the stake and, you know, and all these wonderful things. And at some point in our marriage, we wake up and we go, this isn't the woman I thought I was going to marry. It's very easy to become embittered. And so Paul tells us, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, Jacob had a lot of temptations to be bitter to Leah. Leah is an intrusion in the the relationship that he wanted to have. 
Leah is the Leah is his humiliation. He's been humiliated. He's been made to look the fool. Leah is the symbol of the treachery and the betrayal. But more than that, she was complicit in it. He has all kinds of reasons to be bitter towards her. He has all kinds of reasons to resent her. But he has no excuse. Because the biblical mandate of a man who is married to a woman is that he is to love her. It's that simple. I had a woman tell me a week ago that her Christian husband left her saying, I don't love you anymore. Is that a reason to leave a mate? Even if it's true? For a man to say to his, about his wife or to his wife, I don't love you anymore, I don't love her anymore. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, I have willfully disobeyed the law of God. And because I'm being disobedient to God in my attitude towards my wife, I now justify that as my reason to leave her. Jacob's obligation and responsibility to Leah, the moment he rolled over in bed and looked at that woman, his obligation and his responsibility was to love her no matter what. And to fight tooth and nail against the temptation of bitterness. But he didn't. He didn't love her. And he, res and he didn't resist the temptation to be embittered. I think there's another something really kind of strange going on there. Given the fact that he didn't love her, he was still willing to have children, which is a very intimate situation. One commentator said he was willing to act the stud. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is apparently what he was doing with it. It's a terrible story. And so Leah, Leah begins at this point. You know, she, she's in this situation. We could spend all kinds of time on this. I want to take a few more minutes to just talk about this because next week we have so much ground to cover in the next 24 verses of chapter 30. But, but so, so Leah, then it says that God looked on her and saw that she was unloved and opened her womb while he left Rachel barren. And that whole barrenness of Rachel, we'll deal with that more next week. Okay. But, but he opens Leah's womb and she has four children. Now, uh, I don't have time to draw this out on the board for you. I'll try to do this next week or give you out a, a handout. Actually, the, this next, the next part of the story can be broken down excuse me, into three phases. And in each phase, four children are born. Okay? And it will help you, uh, hopefully, if, if we get time next week to go over this, it will help you kind of place all these children where they are and who they are and who they belong to and all that sort of thing because it can get kind of confusing and sometimes we just read through and go, okay, let's come by and pass that part of the passage. <clears throat> but we'll take some time to kind of organize it so you can, you'll have hangers on which you can hang things. But, but this is phase one. And phase one is Leah bearing children by herself. Nobody else. Okay, so it's just Leah. And she bears four children. 
They are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Okay? And what it strikes you as we read the story, as we begin our study this morning, as we read the story, what strikes you with the birth of with the birth of her first child and then her second child and her third child, what is she expecting with the birth of each child? Love from her husband. Love from her husband. She keeps going, okay, you know, God is fine God is finally God has seen my affliction and now my husband will love me. And then she has another son and she goes and she goes, uh, God has heard that I am unloved. You know, and the idea is, yeah, God's finally going to act here. And, you know, my husband is finally going to love me. And then she has a third child and she says, she says, it's my, you know, I have now three sons. Surely now my husband's going to be attached to me. And she names each son. They're not actually the meaning of Reuben isn't. Uh, saw, but the, it's a pun that he's using, that she's using there. So each each name actually is, is associated with the thing she's saying about God. God heard, or God saw me, Reuben. God heard me, Simeon. I will be attached to my husband, Levi. Okay. So there's a connection between the sound of the word, the sound of the name, and the Hebrew word that she has just used to describe what's going on. Okay. And and so she is she is kind of expecting and hoping. And thinking that with each child, she's finally going to get Jacob's love. What's the problem with that? The problem isn't with Leah. It's not Leah's problem. It's Jacob's problem. So oftentimes when people mistreat us, when people do things, we think it's our fault. It's our, so we keep trying to do things to try and fix the problem. But there's nothing that Leah can do to fix the problem. Because the problem isn't that she hasn't given Jacob enough children. The problem is Jacob is willfully disobeying God and not loving his wife. And there's no way out of this save Jacob's repentance. And she can't do that. She can't buy a change of heart in Jacob, no matter how many children she has. Does that excuse him for not loving a wife? <laughs> in reality, in that culture, a lot of men married wives they didn't choose or love. And yet the requirement to love your wife still stands. In fact, there are many places in the world today where men and women are assigned to one another to marry. No, it was always required. It was always required. In fact, in fact, in the, in the law, God specifically prohibits a man from marrying sisters because of this kind of situation developing. And the implication being, I expect a man to love, no matter how many wives he has, to love them all. Poor Solomon. <laughs> you know? Because uh, God's ideal is not polygamy or bigamy. And ultimately, he prohibits that. Okay? But up to this point, he hasn't specifically prohibited it, even though it's not his will or his desire. But... But clearly there's a responsibility that Jacob has to love any wife that God has given him. 
Now we come to the fourth child, and what does she say? Now I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. And what... There's a couple ways you could read that. Uh, One is, okay, now my husband's going to finally love me and I'll praise the Lord. Or you could read it, okay, my my husband may never love me, but I'm going to praise the Lord. Pardon? I do. Actually, I do think she loved him. We'll, I'll explain maybe a little bit why next week in next week's passage. I think she desires it. But, but the thing that strikes me here is that, is that I think, and I don't know the best way to read this passage, but I'm inclined to think what Leah is finally doing here is she's saying, I don't know if my husband will ever love me, but I know something now. God loves me. Look at all the kids he's given me. So I will praise the Lord. Yahweh. Jacob's God. The God of the husband who does not love her. And so now we discover something about Leah. She's got all this bad stuff going on in her life. She's not as beautiful as her sister. She, you know, she doesn't have anybody who loves her. You know, she ends up in this unloving marriage. Uh, you know, all this negative stuff. But I told you that all this bad stuff was going to happen for a greater good. What is the greater good in Leah's life? Leah ends up in the family of God. Leah ends up leaving Haran and going to the promised land. Leah ends up as part of this great promise and blessing of God on the nations. Leah ends up the mother of the King of Israel and of the Messiah. There are all these wonderful things that happen in her life in spite of the fact that her husband never does apparently love her. And that's so instructive to me. Because I keep wanting to look to other people. I keep wanting to look to people to meet my needs and satisfy my needs and do good in my life. But ultimately, ultimately, I've got to look past them. And it's a remarkable thing to me about Leah that she doesn't look at Jacob and let Jacob distort her view of God. Somehow she manages to look past Jacob and look at Jacob's God and see him for what he is. Well, next week we'll talk about all this tug of war between these two women.